Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming-out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We still have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I am so pumped about our guest with me here today, Rina Yehuda Newman, they, them, is the editor-in-chief of New Voices magazine. Rina Yehuda is a Jewish transgender writer and comics artist celebrating the intersections of queer and Jewish identity. They are passionate about Jewish communal memory, the power of art, Torah, and storytelling, and querying the line between the personal and political. Rina Yehuda, welcome. Thanks for having me today. Yes, it's my pleasure. How's, we kind of already chit-chatted a little bit about this, but how are you? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Um, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Getting into the swing of things. There's a lot on the new voices desk right now that I'm trying to trying to get through and out into the world. Um, but it's, uh, you know, a relatively sunny day here in New York. So I'm feeling all right. Yeah. And I, I went outside a little bit earlier today, also in New York, and it was like pleasantly not very hot yet. At yeah. Least. <laughs> yeah. I think like we're going to have like a cooler one than it's been. That's that's all we, you know, we got to get our breaks when we can and where amen. we can. <laughs> amen, amen. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we all have coming out stories, multiple coming out stories, multiple coming into ourselves stories. And so I would love to hear one of those that you'd like to share. Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, <laughs> I think I'll start in the beginning of saying I was always like a very gender nonconforming child. Um I grew up, I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and for the most, or for the most part, like fairly, fairly progressive world. I started in West Rogers Park in Chicago. My family moved to Evanston, what have you. Um, you know, I was like, I was always, rem- I remember always whenever our babysitter would take us to McDonald's, right? Like I would always ask for the boy toy and then like feel very jilted and angry when in fact, because of my visual appearance, the people would uh, disregard the thing that I had asked them and would in fact give me uh, the toy that I ascribed to being the gender that I did not want mm. um, at the time. Um, you know, I was like, I was like always kind of tomboyish, you know, wearing a lot of my brother's hand-me-downs uh, and after a certain point, kids become very gender ambiguous. Um, you know, and, and I think, uh, those childhood gender words were really powerful. Um, but after a certain point, I think that we come into certain awarenesses about the ways in which uh, childhood gender terminology is very time bound, right? The words tomboy and sissy, right? Which was like the extent, and like girly girl, I guess. So there was an additional gender category there. Um, that these were all really time bound categories. And on some level, I think I like, I had the intuition that there was going to come a moment And like, I don't know, I don't know what door I would walk through. Maybe like I was, it was like, I was going to be like, you know, hitting the, hitting the head. And then like, suddenly I would like wake up and I would like want to do all of the things that cis women did. Mm. Like, I really like, that was, that was my vision of growing up. Like my, my future sort of seemed like this, like weird black box where I'd like come out on the other side, being like a human being. I absolutely did not recognize. 
Um, and I just like assumed that that was like probably the way that things were going to go. You know, I was like probably around like 10 or 11 years old when like, you know, you start getting the like my body and me American girl doll books. Mm. Um, you know, in addition to, I remember there was, there was some, we were on vacation uh, and I have, I have an older brother. And so we were on vacation and we had done like a sort of house swap with some other family. And I remember this family didn't have a TV in their house, which at the time I found very distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, as a, as a, as a gift for the two kids who were going to be coming, they had bought, they had bought my brother and I books and they brought, bought my brother some book about baseball and they bought me like some like preteen girl, like t- full of text acronyms, OMG, LOL book that was like full of like personality quizzes mm. in a sort of like tiger beat style. Um, you know, and I, and I remember this, uh, this book, you know, and I, and I, I paid a lot of attention to this book because as I said, there was not a TV in the house, so there was nothing else to distract me. And I remember that, you know, there were like the four sort of avatars that went throughout the, uh, throughout the book. And like, one of them had like long red curly hair, you know, and she was the kind of like bush bookish, quiet girl character. And I just like, and I sort of remember in this like semi-conscious way thinking like I guess that's what's going to happen to me Mm. I was like huh wonder wonder when that's going to happen so you know the years sort of peel by you know I I I get to middle school it seems about the time that I should try out this whole being gender conforming thing it doesn't go very well Mm -hmm. um you know I I continue to be uh to be treated as as a queer despite you know doing kind of what I what I can to cover it up pretend that something else is happening don't really know that I have options I did not you know have so many models of gender non-conforming adults in my life um you know and so most of the things that were happening were relatively confusing you know and I remember being in like ninth grade and thinking to myself you know I really like boys but I really only want to be with boys if I can be like a boy and since that's not possible I guess I'm attracted to girls you know, and like that was that was sort of the like that was the internal dialogue about what was happening with sexuality, right? Like I in many ways I don't see gender as that se- separate from sexuality. Like I think that they're very they're very entwined. A lot of historical reasons why I think we separated them apart, especially for reasons that like give trans people access to HRT that are not on the basis of sexuality and being a quote unquote correct, which is to say a uh, heterosexual version of of uh, however you are transitioning. Um you know, but I remember like in middle school, Star Trek was basically my sexual awakening. I was watching Star Trek original series, right? It was like William Shatner and like DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy and like their intense homoerotic throuple dynamic. Like that just, that just like blew my mind as a kid. And so I got really invested in like the gay fan fiction scene, right? You know, and like age, age 11 or 12, right? And so like that's playing in the background. I get to high school. I'm like, you know, the whole straight girl thing is just like increasingly failing and failing. And like nobody, like I'm not fooling anybody. Like it's not, it's not really happening. Um, you know, and then of course, because I, because I went to a very progressive high school and, you know, that was sort of between the years of like 2012 and 2016. Yes, I'm very young. Um, <laughs> you know, that there were, there were a number of, there were a number of kids who were sort of starting to come out, question gender I started doing a little bit more research into what this was and probably about my junior year of high school, it sort of smacked me in the face. And I was like, oh yeah, like this is, this is the language for the thing that's been happening this whole damn time. Um, And I remember really not wanting to come out because 
my gender identity being non-binary, right? Specific, and, and really specifically that. Um, I remember thinking nobody's going to take this seriously. This is not this is not an identity or a label that people are familiar with. The whole notion that you would be uh, not one or the other, but something in between, right? I'm just going to spend the rest of my life fucking explaining this to people. Um, was was really distressing to a young me. And so for about a year, I mean, I didn't want to come out because I, I figured that I had like things that I needed to get done in the world and that nobody was going to take me seriously if I came out as trans in the way that I was trans. And then of course, you know, that, that became uh, completely insufferable and, you know, unendurable on some level. Um, and senior year of high school, I, I came out. And the first place that I ever came out was uh, actually in a Jewish fellowship cohort that I was a part of. Um, it was a summer that was the first time, it was a pluralistic Jewish summer camp or summer program. Um, and it was the first time that I was ever meeting modern Orthodox kids uh, and kids who had been raised more religiously observant than I was. And this fascinating, I came out like partway through the summer and I remember the kids who were uh, the most curious in the most meaningful way and like in a really, really genuine way. And to some extent, actually the most supportive were like all of the from kids on this trip. And I had this really interesting moment, I think in, in at that age, right? The, the summer before my senior year of high school, before I would go to college, of realizing that I wanted to become uh, more religiously observant in a number of different ways, that I wanted to learn more about Judaism uh, and really, really struggling with that intersection of my Judaism and my queerness and wondering how can I possibly be this trans and be this Jewish and where will I find this home? Um, and I think, I think I've really spent the last, you know, several years since then coming to, coming to grips with like what that really looks like for me. Um, finding spaces, carving out spaces for others, and really building a Judaism that these days feels completely entwined with my transness. Like, I actually, I can't imagine being transgender and not being Jewish. Uh, that sounds really difficult on some level. <laughs> um, like, I, like, you know, I believe our souls choose these bodies, and, like, this neshama chose this, like, very Jewish vessel, um, to express itself and to, and to get to have this worldly experience in, in Gashmias in the, in the material world. So, you know, I, I think that's, uh, insofar as that's like a coming out story, you know, I, I didn't, I never had one of these moments that was like, I told everybody or, you know, like I, like, I guess I posted on Facebook. Right. But insofar as the coming out is this sort of constant process of just like being known in the world. I think that that's kind of been happening to me since I was quite young. Um, and I'm just proud to be turning into somebody who I think my much younger self would be very, very pleased to meet. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all that you did with us today. Um, so much of what you said resonates with me and especially uh, kind of working my way backwards of like being the representation you never had. Um, that is why I do everything that I do in this moment. And I think beyond is because I, and it's so, I'm, I want to ask you more questions about um, this idea of you kind of like leaning into observance. And it's like in this moment of coming out and transition pun or not intended um, instead of like, for me, I moved away from Judaism. I was like, I can't possibly see my trans 
queer and, and honestly at the point that I was moving away from Judaism I didn't realize I was trans I didn't have the words or the understanding and this was um like in 20 like 2007 so this was a, a and so I know I know context is important right so this is happening like a decade before your uh your moments um but I'm just curious what was it that you were like I want to lean into observance and my transness instead of, so I, you know, we hear, and I'm curious if you've heard this too, of people, you know, choosing one or the other, choosing their queerness over their, their, uh, Jew, their Jewish identity. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think I'll sort of start here in terms of my own context. Um, I grew up at a reform synagogue and in a lot of ways, I think that at least, at least compared to people who I think often came from more religiously conservative environments, um, coming from a place that felt a little bit more accepting about certain things actually gave me the freedom to feel like I got to take things on. Um, you know, and I often wonder, right, if I if I had grown up modern Orthodox or you know somewhere somewhere else in the Jewish world, would I have had that same reaction? I'm not sure. Um, but you know, all that all that said. Um, I think for me, uh, it's always been really clear that gender is a deeply spiritual experience. Um, gender is, yes, gender is socially constructed. Uh, it is a thing that we do uh, together and we create together and we deconstruct together and we reconstruct together, right? It is, it is a process and it is something that we are all actively engaged in. Um, even those of us who are agender, right, are still, are still interacting with it. Um, but there's another part of it that I think is not socially constructed. There is a part of gender that is like deeply, that is deeply stamped on who we are. Um, it's part of the reason why we see gender identities in all of these different cultures around the world, in different places and different times, um, why there's so much diversity to those sets and their textures and flavors and what they look like. Um, and I think that that experience of feeling that my gender was something uh, that that is really a part of my spiritual expression in this world. Ended up meaning that I needed to be able to have um, a spiritual home or a spiritual background or context for those things to take place. Um, like I really, I really believe that you know, if we're also talking about the way that like gender is culturally constructed, if we have a lot of different cultures. Right. That means that different cultures have really different specific gender sets. And so that means that like Jewish cultures have our own very specific gender sets and that these these particular gender identities, I do think were actually really cultivated over like the last hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that like this particular like Jewish faggot gender that I have that like renders itself somehow in 5782, I really think that this has been cultivated for like hundreds of years. Like trans people are very, are very advantageous. We're very good for people's societies and cultures. We help people communicate with each other. We have spiritual insights that a lot of other people don't like, don't have or aren't able to access. We're actually really important for the social binding of any community. Um, I see part of the reason why like this country is so unhealthy is because it's actually trying to root out many of like the very structures and people who actually help help things thrive. Um, and that's definitely a, like <laughs> it's a yeah. part of like the histories of like genocide and colonialism in the United States. Um, but, you know, I, I just I really think about the ways in which gender is part of 
that spiritual expression. And so like my Jewish gender ended up feeling really incomplete if I wasn't able to fuse that, I think, with certain certain observances, like becoming Shabbat observant, um, like getting to be in Jewish community, like learning how to daven and having the experience of the way that Hebrew feels in my body. Um, and that all of that was providing a background for me to understand what are all of these other spiritual knowledges that I can access as the particular kinds of trans Jew that I am. Um, and for some reason, I think I like wasn't actually willing to make that compromise of choosing either or. Mm. Um, that is something that sort of stumps me about like why it didn't feel like such a split, even though there were moments when it really tore me apart. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to, um, you might've seen me like gesture. I, um, I know what you mean when you talk about, uh, I feel like it's like a little insider baseball of like the necessity of trans people in culture and in society and like the, the spirituality and the ways that uh, we help communication. Can you kind of help parse out what, what you actually mean by that? Like dig into those a little bit deeper. So folks listening who may not understand what you mean by that um, can, can get a glimpse into that. Yeah. Um, you know, insofar as like gender is a real thing and it ends up meaning that we experience gender affinity with people who have similar gender experiences to us. Um, that also means that the opposite is true is that there are some things that I think get lost in translation um, between people who have very separate gender experiences. And I mean, I really believe that the ability to live in both worlds, to understand something about one's own masculinity and one's own femininity at the same time ends up making us into uniquely good communicators, ends up meaning that we're able to understand the interior experiences of others in ways that I think, I think go beyond what somebody with like either a more static or a more binary gender understanding might have. Um, I mean, I think that that kind of gets at it. And I, I, something that I that I kind of want to that I want to put in uh, dubs is a piece of Torah that I think was originally your Torah mm. that I got through um, Magi Jos a while back and um, a phone call that we had, which is this notion. And you can probably explain this better that gender that trans people are the barbell or that trans people are the bar, that if gender is a barbell and that we have the masculine and the feminine in one end and either end that people who are trans or people who are gender non-conforming are the connection point between the two. Did that come from you? It sounds very smart. And that's not me. I, 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 I cannot ca- take credit for that. Right. Um, so, but whoever said like that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I remembered like hearing that you were cited for that. Um, I may have said something similar to that, but I don't remember the barbell um, metaphor. Maybe that was Joe's. <laughs> mm-hmm. but either way I mean it, it's really that idea has really stuck with me mm. um of what it means to be spiritually like a go-between um I mean and look I I think you can see certain things when you are when you had to become an outsider in mm. some way shape or form I mean W.B. Du Bois talks about this right in the concept of the veil right and dual consciousness of being of having to see you know, yourself through the lens of the oppressor, right? And also to be able to understand the oppressor in order to navigate the world that's been set out for you. Mm-hmm. And that that dual consciousness or that double consciousness ends up meaning that you are aware of things that people who are operating inside the system can't actually see. And I and I believe that some of those things are not just things that are based in our own oppression, but in the in the context of of gender. Um 
are really about things that are part of the spiritual fabric of the world around us uh, and are about, you know, how we achieve revelation, um, how we make the world kinder and better for each other, um, how we can self-actualize in the world. And that I, I really believe that trans people are actually uniquely positioned to be able to see and experience some of those things and articulate it for other people as well. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. I remember there was, um, I got into a pretty heated um, argument with my mom at one point, and now I'm trying to remember exactly. I won't, I won't say what she said to me, but my response was something along the lines of, I actually am way more equipped to be having these conversations, whatever, whatever it was, it was like, to your point of, no, I've had to like, really learn how to be an effective communicator to survive in this world. And I have to really, like, for me, and I think a lot of trans people, uh, you have to go deep, you have to dig in, and you have to look at the mirror over and over, and you have to see all the things to be able to undo all of the things to then, you know, return to our, who we have always been. And in doing that, it takes a lot of um, patience and kindness to oneself um, and the tools to effectively communicate both with ourselves and other people. Um, And so that's just to your point of how, how net, necessary it is because you're saying you know because I think I talk about this with friends a lot about the this idea of like everyone actually has access to do this work whether or not someone is trans and there's so so much we all could undo we all need to be undoing everything (laughs) essentially um but it's if you are if you are somebody who is benefiting from the system what's why would you look inside why would you mess up? Why would you mess with it? And I also feel like I want to hold space for that younger version of myself. And this is something I think about a lot is like that young kid who just had none of the language mm. and none of the frameworks to really like help them out of those moments. Um, that young kid who I used to be, who had to learn how to articulate all of those things in order to survive right? That part of our ability to go in, you know, that there is, there is something about it that is, that is really a gift. And there's another part of it that is really the result of, like, it's a coping mechanism on some level to be able to articulate and describe this internal experience. Because if you can't defend yourself by being smarter than everybody who's attacking you about it, Mm -hmm. you can't have it. Like you, it's not safe. Right. right. And that, and that for me as, as a, as a writer and a, as a comics artist, that those tools, I feel like I cultivated those from a young age because I knew that those were going to be the tools that would help me to be able to protect and defend myself so that I could even just be myself. Um, like all of it, something, something I've been thinking about. And I just wrote about for, uh, I, I, I gave like a pride month of our Torah at the synagogue that I grew up at very sweet, very honored that I, you know, had the opportunity to be invited to do that. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It was great. Um, but one of, one of the anecdotes that I, I shared in this Torah was, uh, an experience that I sort of like recently unearthed from my memory within the past year, um, of being at a birthday party for a family friend. And it was a birthday party that was like all boys. Uh, and I was there, I guess, as the, you know, as like the token girl. 
Um, I'm not sure how aware the rest of the boys in the in in the in the group were of, of this, whatever. Um, but we're all, you know, going to wash our hands before we're about to have cake and pizza because that's what you do at a laser tag birthday party. And I remember um, the the guy who was working there, who's probably like some teenager or like you know at most in his like early twenties. Uh, you know, I was going to go wash my hands. And so I went into the girl's room and I remember getting like grabbed by the scruff of my neck Mm. and having this guy just like yell at me, like specifically him, like spitting in my face and like calling me like a little pervert um, for going into the women's room because I was like, you know, apparently trying to like sneak a peek at the girls. Right. Okay. Um, And the ways in which that level of gender interrogation is something that like all gender nonconforming kids are facing constantly and all children are facing constantly, but whether or not they are experiencing that level of policing as like in such a direct and violent act is, you know, subject to how much they are gender nonconforming. And really thinking about how those those are actual experiences of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, that was me being sexually harassed by an adult. Um, you know, and I, and I think often about like, what are the ways in which that impacts how we come of age later, um, our relationships to sexuality as trans people, um, our relationship to our bodies as trans people. I mean, I, like, I really remember as, as a kid, um, the way that I didn't mind when people thought I was a boy, the part that I minded was that I thought that I was lying to them Mm. and that while the gender identification felt good that I felt like I was deceiving them and that that was the problem because I didn't want to be a liar. And the way that this culture like really relates to gender nonconformity through a lens of deceit rather than through Mm -hmm. a lens of self-actualization. And so like we have to articulate ourselves so that we get to tell people that we're not lying about who we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of layers, a lot of things. um going in all different directions with this one yeah no that's okay and well th- i'm sorry that that happened to you um that is not okay and you know i it's it's wild how you know hearing other people's stories i'm such a huge fan of storytelling in all the ways because it's it's such a key to unlock for better or for worse memories or other kinds of like moments of here's more proof of a time when I was young and this is something that impacted me. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, I think um, so much of, you know, how we are raised and how we are taught to, to be, I mean, I mean, and I'm just, you know, I think saying things that are very obvious, but maybe not to everybody of, um, how we are as adults and something that you said earlier also really resonated with me of um, like you like boys, but you only wanted to be with, you know, be with boys. If you were basically read as a boy, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and I have a very similar, similar, but like with different words, meaning like, I always had crushes on girls, but like when I had crushes on boys, I think I'm actually still trying to like figure out like, was it to like fit in or did I actually have crushes on boys? Because um, I've shared this a few times before on some of these episodes, but 
ever since starting testosterone and more and more being read as more masculine and more like closer to who I am authentically, um, who I have attraction to is, is changing. And I don't even know. And I don't, I don't even know if the word changing is the right word. It's unearthing of what's maybe always been there, but it's when I try to articulate this to people, it's like, whenever I was with cis men, I was being read as a cis woman. And that felt like I was lying. Like I, that was wrong. That was inauthentic. That was unhealthy for me. Um, But now that I'm not being read as that, what would that be like to actually then be in those kinds of um, like sexual and romantic um, relationships and, uh, and such. So it's just, it's interesting how there's so much undoing that has to happen in this return to self. Um, And something you said too, about like holding space for the younger you. um, I think about that all the time too. Of like, I also stopped drinking two years ago um, and use drinking and alcohol as a coping mechanism, as a survival tool, as a way to numb. And like, because everything was so hard for me, um, that's not meant to like have violins. It's just like, I was struggling deeply personally that I needed an escape. Um, and I, there are moments where I'm, I'm, when I think back to that of, and just like, like my first instinct is, like, why didn't I do, why didn't I like figure this out sooner? Why didn't I come out sooner? I missed out on all these X, Y, Z years and I'm already losing my hair because I'm almost 40 and I'm on testosterone, you know, like, um, and then I take a beat and I'm like, you know, hold space for myself. It's like, I did the best I could. I did. I really did. And I, I wasn't ready. I didn't know until I was ready. And I knew. And just really, I've been, uh, I was doing some research on teshuva and uh, come, uh, some of the different ways that people think and talk about teshuva is, is truly like, not only like repenting, but returning. And returning, returning to the self. Returning to the self. And it's like, I'm going to dig into that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into that more of, and that, you know, it's like that dual, like returning to self and also forgiving the self that I was. Not that I did anything wrong, but like needing to forgive the idea. I think that I was like, that I, what should have been. I wrote a comic um, that feels, feels like it rhymes with this concept. Mm. Um, it, it's been a series that I've been working on for, I think actually a couple of years now um, that I, I might publish at some point into, into some collection, but it's a, uh, it's a comic about me babysitting my younger self. Mm. We're going for a walk through the neighborhood that I grew up in in West Rogers Park on a rainy day. And I'm, I'm speaking with my, with my younger self. And the narration is about the ways in which, much like an acorn contains an entire tree, we contain all versions of ourselves at all times. And that our younger self is on some level actually the oldest version of ourselves that was able to love our current self into being. And it's because of all of the past versions of ourselves that we're able to make it to the moment that we are and that we can love ourselves both backwards and forwards in time, that future versions of Rina Yehuda are actually only there because the current version of me was able to love them into being. And so too, my past self is loving me into being in this moment. Um, and I often think about that in really difficult moments of like, what would the older version of myself say to this current younger version of myself? 
and how proud the younger version of myself would be that this current version of myself was able to come into being. And really thinking about the ways in which I think particularly how we think about queer age and queer time, um, those can be really powerful understandings for that, that experience of self-forgiveness and the ways in which we didn't get to do things at the times in which like our straight cis peers did. And frankly, like, I'm glad that we get to do them on our own timelines because it means that we get to have these experiences that are actually really about us rather than about what's what the rest of the world is saying we should be doing at a particular moment and the ways in which like all of us are so much older and so much younger than we actually are at all given times in really extreme ways. But that can be a blessing too. Yeah. Wow. I, I would read the shit out of that comic. I love, <laughs> I love that so, 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 so much. And I love this idea of, you know, we contain all versions of ourselves at all times. I think that that's beautiful. Um, and I, I speak to what you just said too a lot um, around this idea of almost like lamenting, like not being able to do certain things at the, at the time, quote unquote, when it would be. But then I also am like, how lucky am I that I am in, I get to intentionally choose each yeah. And everything that I'm doing and I'm present for it and I'm not just going through the motions as so many kids do because it's like, that's what they're supposed to do. But I am active in each decision and I'm doing it because I want to do it. And I have the, the age and the wisdom to appreciate it and um, enjoy it in a way that I, I don't think a lot of younger not all, but a lot of younger kids um, and people, um, how they are moving through the world. And so uh, one quick story, and then I want to um, keep talking about your comics and such um, and your writing. But uh, I, um, I was a, a, a staff for a Shabbaton for Keshet. Uh, where I used to work and it was the summertime Shabbaton and it was, I think it was a year after my top surgery. So it was one of one, if not the first time of like being in swim trunks, like that I got to pick out. I wasn't in a bathing suit that made me feel, you know, I wasn't in a bathing suit or body that was like very dysphoric for me. And I remember first like sitting on the edge of the pool with a shirt on feeling very self-conscious and like anxious and then kind of having a quick conversation with myself of be the, be the representation you never had. And, and, and it truly was with, it was a, it was only us in the pool and it was all LGBTQ Jewish teens. It's like, this is, if not now, when, <laughs> right, this is the time. Amen. And so I took my shirt off and then I was nervous to get in the pool. And I, I decided to be transparent with the teens um, and they were, they started cheering me on. And then I got in the pool and they all were like, can we say the Shehechianu, the prayer of, you know, marking of a moment in time. And I was like, that is so special to me. Yes. And then I went down the water slide and I actually wrote a blog post about this because it, it truly was like pure bliss because it, and it was like the smallest water slide. It was like at this little, you know, like <laughs> at, a, at a camp's pool, you know, it was like very small, but it was like extreme euphoria because I was like in a bathing suit that was that you know like affirming for me and in a body that was affirming for me surrounded by people who were who were only just loving me for who I am and I wasn't 
not being myself. I wasn't pretending or, you know, having to be somebody for somebody else. And so it was like with all of that going down this, you know, two second water slide was absolutely incredible. Um, I would love to hear a podcast episode that's just about queer swimming stories. Yeah. Um, I feel like our relationships to water and like what it means for us to be able to have our bodies out in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, insofar as I'll, I'll count a pool as, you know, being part of nature. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it just, man, I like, I remember this is, this is just bringing up for me. Um, I, I lived in a co-op um, before moving to New York. Um, it was a co-op with 27 other people. It ended up being largely queer, even though the house wasn't like an explicitly queer house. Um, and we had, and it was, it was right on the lake. And I hadn't gone swimming for years and years and years. And I have a lot of like really bad childhood memories of swimming, like really disliking it. And I remember, you know, all of the folks in the co-op would take a dip in the lake and it was one particularly hot day and it looked really nice, but I didn't want to go in because I had it in my head that I didn't like swimming. Um, And like most of the folks who were in the lake were either in their naked or just, you know, just in their, in their boxers or their underwear. And I remember I stripped down um, just to my boxer briefs and I got in the water and it was this, it was this revelatory moment of, it's not that I don't like swimming. It's that I didn't like all of the structures around it. Yeah. And that actually to get to be in my body and to feel like my body wasn't an issue in a space around other people for whom my body wasn't an issue actually allowed me to enjoy this experience of like getting to have a body in the world, like getting to have a body in God's world. What a nice thing. What a nice thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had, I had a also similar revelation too of like, cause I remember, you know, we, my family, we used to go on like beach vacations and pool vacations and I used to hate being at the pool. Yep. And then recent, more recently, I'm like, no, I don't hate being at the pool. I actually love being by the water. I love being outside. And it, it all was like making sense to me. Okay. Oh, that's why. Right. Oh, I don't like the dressing rooms. Oh, I don't like yep. the stress of having to like go to the store to buy the bathing suit and the way that it like doesn't fit me and the way that like the material feels on all these parts of my body. Like, oh, I don't like the stress of like having to be in these hyper gendered environments that are sorting me in a way that's like explicitly about my body. Like maybe that's part of the reason why. <laughs> right. Huh. Yeah. And right. I feel like that brings us right back to this idea of like having to be able to communicate Yep. exactly that. And, you know, right. I would imagine you you didn't just come up with that. You've been thinking about it and talking about it and like learning how to articulate that. Um, and so case in point, everybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want to shift us just a little bit. So um, you are the editor in chief for new Jewish voices. Uh, and so this new voices magazine, new, uh, thank you. Um, and um, so this is a two-year fellowship. And you are responsible for editing, fundraising, and running fellowships and conferences. And if I if I read this right, like you are you are newly out of college. Is that correct? I graduated school in 2019. Okay. Um, so within the last like few years, yeah. Yeah. So this position, this feels like <laughs> a very like responsibility heavy. Uh, I'm not even, I don't even know how to say what I'm trying to say. How's it going? <laughs> it's a, it's a wild job. The new voices editor position is, is a wild job. It's remarkable that it exists. Um, it's also, you know, I, I studied history in school. And so I always like giving a little historical context to things. Um, 
New Voices Magazine and the parent organization that it belongs to, the Jewish Student Press Service, is a relic of an era of Jewish student organizing that no longer exists. Uh, we were founded in 1971 as the Jewish Student Press Service, which was a wire service that connected all of the different um, largely progressive Jewish student magazines that were happening all across the country during the anti-Vietnam War protest era, um, along with other movements of the new left, um, the civil rights movement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this was also from an era in which there was more Jewish communal money to be given to independent Jewish organizations that were not organized by communities like Hillel. And so even though all of the organizations that used to be funded by uh, the National Jewish Students' Appeal, uh, or NADSA, uh, folded, and that organization is no longer around, the Jewish Student Press Service, as, as now New Voices Magazine, um, continues to publish and is always run by somebody who is newly out of school um, so that it stays fresh and relevant and it's always about the young Jews who it's seeking to serve. Um, I am, as of, as of this month, I am two years into the position um, and I'm also the, the first and only editor who's gotten a contract extension. Uh, mm -hmm. So just like a little bit of a flex there, but uh, yeah. part of the reason why I'm still in the job is because I'm going to be continuing this until January, um, which has been really exciting. Um, look, the best part of the job is that I get to talk to outrageously smart young Jews who are thinking about all kinds of really salient and really pressing topics. Uh, and I get to offer them a platform with which they get to they get to speak their truth and they get to speak truth to power in the Jewish world. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a wacky job. I'm also responsible for fundraising my own salary, uh, for organizing fellowships and conferences and workshops and whatnot. Um, we are currently hiring an associate editor. So if there's anybody out there who is looking for a little bit of freelance work, that's uh, that's on the horizon. Cool. Um, but it's a it's it's an amazing position. And I am also super proud that I get to be not the first, but the second non-binary editor in chief. Um, you know, I, I think coming into this position, it was actually a really big deal that my predecessor, Daniel Holtzman, um, came out and transitioned while they were on the job uh, and that I got to inherit this editorship not having been the first. And I think we don't often always talk about how important it is to not have to be the first. Mm -hmm. Like we do a lot of talking about what it is to be the first, right? Like many of us have been the first in many different environments. Mm -hmm. um, and that is uh, stressful and incredibly important and courageous uh, and often really sucks in all kinds of ways that we don't often get to talk about because we're too bu busy put putting on a, a comfortable and like a happy face for everybody else so that they don't know actually the level of turmoil that it causes. Um, but, you know, I, I continue to feel really grateful that somebody else went before me in this position. Um, and that like the reason why any of us ever do things for the first time, you know, as queer people, as trans people is really in hopes that there will be a second. And so it'll be a lot easier for the second. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so I want to talk really briefly, if that's even possible, and uh, about the, uh, it's an article that came out about the Jewish camp experience for LGBTQ campers that you edited, but you did not write. But um, I'm just curious, like what, what inspired that piece now? So last year, um, we had published an investigation into the experiences of Jewish youth at youth groups and the experiences, what we called uh, toxic hookup culture, right? A really hyper-sexualized, heteronormative environment 
in which a lot of youth were having their first sexual experiences, but also there were no frameworks around consent. And there was a lot of pressure that would lead to coercion and in certain cases, sexual harassment and sexual assault in, in these various organizations. And one of the things that came out of this article, I mean, like the, the story really went viral um, and we were really honored to get to publish it. Um, but one of the things that I realized coming out of this article was that there were also a lot of gaps and that in any story, you have to really be careful and been picking and choosing about what you are going to what you're going to publish because you don't have infinite words and your readers don't have infinite attention spans. Um, but there were a lot of gaps. And one of the gaps in this story was specifically a focus on queer youth. Right. We talked about the experiences of LGBT youth in youth group, but we didn't really get to have that intense focus. And so I was looking around for various writers who would be able to expand on this issue. Um, and summer camp became the subject uh, specifically in this investigation, um, partially because it hasn't really been looked at that intensely, uh, partially because that was where the interests of this writer particularly landed. Um, and partially because summer camp is an experience that has touched the lives of so many Jews. It's really a formative place where many of us have our first serious Jewish and frankly, like spiritual communities. And I, I think New Voices as a Jewish student publication, um, we are independently funded, which means that largely we do get to publish what we want to publish. Uh, we are not beholden um, to federations and frankly, more right wing Jewish funding sources in the ways that a lot of other publications are. And that meant that we felt like it was really our obligation to get to publish on this topic and to really explore um, how were queer youth being impacted by the things that happened to them at summer camp and to provide an analysis about what's going on on the ground so, so that counselors and administrators actually have clear ideas about the things that really do need to change. And how has, I, I love, I love, I loved it. Um, and by I loved it, that's a, a weird thing to say. It's a, in the sense of this is an important piece that needs to be out there. Um, and so I'm glad that it's out there. How has it been received? Um, for the most part, positively, uh, like receiving feedback from a lot of queer folks who attended summer camp saying, wow, you know, when I read this, I didn't necessarily expect to relate to this as much as I did. But all of these experiences I haven't thought about in years really came to the fore. Um, I know that it's been shared around in a lot of queer Jewish organizations um, that people seem to be really glad for the things that are contained in it. Um, but I, I will say there hasn't been as large of a response from Jewish summer camps as I would have hoped. Mm. Um, some of it is the time that it came out, right? It came out right as the summer season was beginning, and that was intentional. We really wanted uh, Jewish summer camp professionals to get to read this piece um, and think about it before the campers came into camp. Um, it might also mean that camps have less capacity to be able to super publicly respond to those things. And I understand that. Um, but there is a there is a part of me that uh, feels a little bit saddened by the fact that it hasn't been as widely read and as widely received as our previous investigation. Um, and I do think some of that is because it concerns queer youth. And there is less of a there is in general less of a concern for things that impact queer youth. Uh, and that's that's been hard. That's been, a, I think, a, a hard part of seeing the way that this story has launched out into the world and recognizing that for the rest of the Jewish world, queer issues are not necessarily at the top of the agenda. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't compel people to make statements. Um, and hopefully over time, 
an article like this can spur policy change because other people will read it and will be working on more of the specific issues that uh, that this article uncovered. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I feel a bit ambivalent about the response, which is to say, I'm so glad that it's out in the world. And I think that there, it's touched the lives of many, many readers and it's gone to a lot of places and folks who would have never otherwise really known how much of an issue this was and, and continues to be. And also, uh, it is getting, I think a little bit less buzz and press than I maybe would have hoped. And I do wonder how much of that has to do with homophobia and transphobia in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that there is a piece of it too around um, institutions taking accountability and not wanting to, you know, take ownership into harm that's been caused. Um, I'm curious if in, in the, in the investigation of all this, if there's a lot of, a lot of the article, um, which I think is maybe the point, and you can correct me if that's wrong, is to kind of highlight and pull out all of the negative aspects of how camps, I mean, there are, there are pockets of here's like the potential of camp, but here's how that fell short in all these ways for LGBTQ campers. But I'm wondering if in in the investigation, if there were any um, positive things that came out of like, I know in, in the article, you talk about like Camp Tawanga's all gender cabin and one of the, um, one of the URJ camps, you know, having to uh, out trans campers, letting them be in the bunk where they belong. You know what I mean? Like, okay, cool. Great. And uh, so I'm curious. Yeah. Again, if there were any, any positive things that you found that just didn't have room in this article, or um, I know also noticed I used to work at Keshet um, for five years and uh, we've done a lot of work with camps and really done a lot of work. Or we, I say we, I'm not there anymore, um, have done a lot of work trying to scale, scale the work for camps. And I know that, um, you know, that all of this takes time, but I'm curious if any of that came up in, in this investigation as well, because there is work being done. Yeah, I know it needs to be done quicker, but it is out there. Right. Right. There are, I mean, I think in, in the most basic, in the basic level, when you're sort of asking, you know, were there really like positive things that came out of this investigation? I mean, one of the things that, you know, we, and we did really try to include it, but like there was limited word count, mm-hmm. um, was the amount that a lot of queer kids found their first chosen families at camp. Mm-hmm. And I think that that deserves its own story. Um, the ways in which we find each other before we come out, mm-hmm. the ways yeah. that we like know who we are before we know who we are. Um the fact that like all of the people who I'm still in touch with from summer camp, like largely ended up coming out as trans this, like before any of us had access to any of that language, right? Like those were the groups that coalesced and like, these were the people that we found each other in. Um, and that there's something really special about the fact that people got to also have that in a Jewish environment. Right. That was really safe. And that actually one of the reasons why I'm like such a, such a proponent of these things changing is because I think camp can actually be a really, a really nurturing space where people get to have those really, really protected first queer experiences and first experiences of queer affinity with other campers. Um, and to some extent with counselors as well. So, you know, I think that's a really positive piece that came out of it, you know, and right. The, the Mr. Rogers quote of always look for the helpers, mm-hmm. right. It was wonderful to hear about all of the ways in which Ketcha is doing um, like so many trainings and has like, is one of the few organizations that actually has those resources available Mm-hmm. Um, the, da- the sad part of it is that camps don't seem to be contracting out to Keshet 
in order to get those trainings, right? One of the things that we pointed to at the end of the article is that there, one of, one of the things that needs to shift is actually there materially need to be more resources that are going to trainings that are going to um, people who can be uh, like on staff advisors for, I mean, DEI issues generally, and, you know, specifically issues of gender and sexuality, um, that we we need to be allocating resources to make sure that this is actually in like a, a built-in part of the camp experience and the way that staff and administration is relating to camp and policy. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things that are, there are a lot of things that are happening. And I think it's, it's important to emphasize that. And, you know, my journalist and I had a lot of conversations about, you know, how do we, how do we balance like the tremendous trauma and pain in the story with being able to say like, and there are things we can do and there are steps that are being taken and there are people who are doing that work. Um, so hopefully we were able to strike some of that balance. Uh, but I, I hope to be able to continue to talk about the things that are really that are really positive so that people can see those examples and, and follow in those footsteps. Yeah. Yeah. It's no easy feat. Um, and yeah, I would imagine, you know, there's, there's just, there's so much work to be done and that it feels that it's also, you know, it's important to also celebrate those moments of actually there are really, you know, but again, I'm not, I'm not an editor and don't know how to do it. And that was more just curiosity around that, that piece of it. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about um, the testosterone survey zine, um, which I can't wait to get my hands on. Um, do you mind just giving our listeners a brief um, history and explanation of what this incredible resource is? Yeah. So um, when I'm not on the clock as the New Voices editor, um, I am a comics artist uh, and a writer by night. And that meant that uh, during during the Omicron wave, uh, it was a time of a lot of loneliness for a lot of us, as many moments in the pandemic have been. Um, and having newly moved to New York City, I think I was experiencing some some degree of community loneliness, especially you know, in December, January, when, you know, the new wave hit and a lot of us were really inside. And I ended up launching a survey that was just totally informal, a Google, a Google form survey uh, with 73 questions um, about people's experiences medically transitioning on testosterone. And so I put together Jewish people or all people, all people, got it. Okay. Um, like the requirement was that you did not identify as a cisgender man, uh, and that you had medically taken testosterone for the purpose of some kind of gender transition. Um, and so I created this whole 73 question survey, talked to a number of other, you know, trans queer friends of mine about it, um, put it out into the world, launched it, you know, launched it by posting about it on my Instagram and a little bit on my Facebook, whatever. I figured, you know, I'd get 20, maybe 30 responses Um, that would be cool. I could do like a little art project about it. Just curious to see what other people's experiences had been um, about dosage, experiences with doctors, bodily changes, emotionally, emotional changes, sexuality changes, et cetera, et cetera. So I put it out into the world. After four weeks, I get 389 responses from people across the world. Wow. I was floored by the response. I could not believe the number of people who wanted to participate in the survey, which by the way, because it was so informal, I didn't have a budget to pay people, Mm. right? I also Mm -hmm. don't have a background in statistics or data science. Um, This was very much, I I consider this to be a a community health art project. And one, 
seeing the number of people who participated really tells me that there is that this the survey is really answering a need that there is right. really a desire for us to have more information about the experiences of HRT on our bodies and on our lives. Um, and two, it really catalyzed me to feel like I needed to be a good steward of this information um, that belongs to so many people who so graciously shared it with me. And so I closed the survey in January of 2022, and I got to work compiling the results and illustrating them and analyzing them. And so now about six months later, I have this, uh, this 60 page zine called the testosterone survey zine, uh, a community health art project by Rudy Yehuda Newman. Um, and it's filled with, uh, comics illustrations of, uh, various, various parts of the survey. Um, I really tried to be a good steward of this information by just illustrating the things that I found. Um, I didn't do, I didn't do like a ton of analysis on it, right? I have write-ups for a lot of the different questions, but this is really in many ways straight up just trying to show what are the things that people wrote in to this survey and showing just kind of the raw data about what people's experiences are and allowing the readers to come to their own conclusions and ask their own questions about what this survey data means. And so I, I really made this, this zine with two, two interests in mind, which was one, actually for doctors, uh, therapists, and other practitioners who often take care of trans people, right, wanting to get this information into the hands of people who might actually have access to the means to do better and serious research into these experiences. Um, and two, for this to really be a resource for other trans people, specifically trans masculine people, to actually talk about what's happening in our bodies. I think a lot of us have been really reticent to talk about some of the parts and effects of HRT that are really scary, um, partially because it's taken decades and decades of activism for us to even get the scarce amount of trans healthcare that we really have. And so there's a reticence to talk about the ways in which going on testosterone might actually be uh, physically, medically, or even like psychologically uh, in some ways dangerous, or at the very least, a total fucking wild card for all of us because there isn't actual research that helps us understand what risk we're putting ourselves at by going on it. Um, you know, and after being on testosterone for myself for three years at this point, you know, I think a lot about how we now have informed consent models, which have become the standard practice in a lot of different uh, medical establishments, which is awesome, right? It means that people don't have to go through therapists that give them a letter that says that they're trans enough, right? You don't have to prove anything to anyone about who you are, right? You just, you're able to just sign a waiver and a form saying you understand and you can you can get access to HRT. Um, but I, I'm really in a moment where right now I'm questioning, I don't know how much informed consent is possible when there isn't information to consent to, and that we all deserve medically accurate information about the impacts of these medications on our bodies so that we can actually make informed decisions for our future and for our health. So the purpose of the zine is really just to open up that conversation and to do it in a way that's actually really meant to be about us. I really tried to make the illustrations really loving and in a lot of ways joyful. I drew like a ton of transmasculine friends of mine. Um, so like a lot of the cartoons and comics are based on people who I really know and love. And hopefully some of that joy comes through in the work. But that's uh, that's the testosterone survey zine. It's not currently available, but it will be in August um, for hard copy and for free or donation download on my Gumroad store. So I can can also give you that link for later. Yeah, that would be awesome. And did, sorry if you said it. I know you said it to me earlier. When will when will it be available? Um, by the end of August. So okay. I'm going to be having a launch party. The date is currently TBD, uh, just because I'm still working out with venues. But once 
once the launch party happens, um, the zine will be public online. Um, I will be posting about it on my Instagram, which is at rena.yehuda. Uh, it will also be on my Gumroad store, which is gumroad.com slash Rena Yehuda. So those are, those are all links through which you will be able to access the zine come August. Amazing. I cannot wait to, to see it. Um, this has been, I, this has been incredible. I have to bring, I have to move us into our, our last segment, which is the lightning round. Uh, but I could talk about all of this stuff with you for hours and hours. Um, so this lightning round of questions um, is meant to be lighthearted and silly. Uh, they are mostly all open-ended because the first three seasons or two seasons, I was told my questions were too binary because they were all either or. <laughs> so they might take a little bit longer to answer. That's fine. Um, and again, it's just for fun. So you ready? Yeah. All right. Do it. If you could name your own crayon, what would you name it? Ooh. Um, pomegranate juice. Love it. Favorite time of day? Dusk. But specifically dusk in a flower garden, because I think that I think that the flowers smell best at that time as the day is cooling down. Mm. All right. Favorite current queer media representation? Oi. um, Current queer. Can I do historical queer? Sure. No, it's got to be. It's got to be current. No, I'll do historical. I really, I really love the collections of Pat Califia. Uh, (laughs) Just going to put it out there. I think that he should be white or red. Um, And I really love his stuff. So I'm here to plug uh, that everybody reads Public Sex by Pat Califia. Okay. Thank you. Uh, maybe we'll make history current again, or maybe we shouldn't do that. Actually, well, depending I mean, on depending on what we can bring <laughs> back certain things. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> that's right. All right, a song that makes your heart sore. Ooh, um, you know, when someone asks you what your taste in music is, and then you can't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. Um, no, I want to have an answer for it. Um, currently the origin of love from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm, I listen to that on repeat. Oh yeah, baby. Or Wig in a Box, to be honest. Yeah. Which, which version do you listen to? Like whose version? I love the John Cameron Mitchell originals. Oh God. What a man. I met him and he was so nice. And I was, like, I was like, Baruch Hashem. Because you never know when you meet your heroes. If you told me that he was mean to you, that was going to be devastating. I know, I know. And he was so nice. Oh, um, <laughs> favorite beverage? Um, problematic fave, Coca-Cola. Oh, same. Yeah. Uh, but Diet Coke um, or Coke Zero. Um, yeah. Favorite quote? Um, ooh. Oh, man. <laughs> these are supposed to be lightning rounds i know i know um, it's hard when they're not binary uh gamzula tova this too is for the good beautiful and last but not least bagels or donuts donuts Ooh. i usually but- like savory things but the texture of donuts just wins every time okay Typically, the correct answer is bagels, but we'll let you have it this one time. <laughs> Wait, can I go back on my favorite beverage? Sure. Martinelli sp- sparkling apple cider Ooh. every day of the week. Okay. Really, a secret about me that's now not a secret because I'm saying this on a podcast. 
every like every like four to five months I'll just like I'll buy like Martinelli sparkling cider and I'll like post about it like a million times on my social media tagging Martinelli's in hopes that like they will give me a sponsorship and like I will get to show for them and have a lifetime supply of apple cider okay so maybe we'll tag Martinelli's in this that's right uh in this post um the only corporate sponsorship I would ever want is Martinelli's sparkling apple cider amazing okay you heard it here first everybody um Rena Yehuda this has been an incredible conversation thank you so much for being here and thank you for coming out Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming out.